Welcome to Eamonmally.com. This is Eamonmally.com's first political podcast. This will become a regular feature on our website. The podcast may change from time to time. It may be thematic, like today, or it may well be a meet-the-press situation. Who knows? Today we're discussing Margaret Thatcher and Ireland. My guests are David McKittrick and Alex Kane. David is well known to you, writes for the London Independent, regular broadcaster, and Alex is a regular writer, contributor to the newsletter, to eamonmally.com, etc. And indeed, Mr. McKittrick makes the odd contribution to eamonmally.com. What prompted this discussion on the Iron Lady essentially is the movie in which Meryl Streep performs very, very brilliantly. Uh, I went to see it myself, and Alex, I know that you have been to see it, and you're a great admirer of Mrs. Thatcher. David, you haven't uh, seen the movie. Any particular reason why you haven't seen it to date? Uh, because the reviews are mixed. I'm a great fan of Meryl Streep, but there seemed to be too much about uh, Mrs. Thatcher's health and the, the dementia in general about it. And I thought, you know, I, I go to the movies sometimes for education, but most of the time, really, it's, it's, it's escapism to get away from things. And it sounded like the, the themes in it were some of them were just a bit too heavy for me to go to on a Friday or Saturday night. Is that how you saw it, Alex? Because I have to say, I'm not a movie-goer. Uh, I went to see this because, like yourselves, like both of you, like David and, and, and myself, you've lived through the Thatcher era A to Z. Did you find that dimension, that aspect of Margaret Thatcher and the movie, as oppressive as David might think it was? Um, no, I didn't in one sense, because um, it isn't a political biography. I think that, that should be made clear. Um, it, it's a portrayal of a woman who's lost power in just about every sense that it's possible to lose power. It was at times an uneasy mix of you know the, the former leader with the, the, the person as she has now become. But I went back to see it again. Because um, I think sometimes I went to see it because I was asked to go and see it and review it. And you watch a film totally differently when you're there for review purposes. And I went back to watch it again in a much more relaxed, was there just to enjoy myself. It's actually a more powerful film than I expected it to be. There, there's a deeper politics to it. There's something comes through that doesn't come. But I think when you first watch it, you're so obsessed with the dementia. I'm probably thinking about people in your own life. I was thinking of my mother all the way through it, who suffered n not to that scale, but certainly had problems in the last few years. Well, uh, I must say the one big theme that came across for me, and we're going to move on from the film now, uh, was the echo, the acoustic of Enoch Paul when he repeated the adage that all careers, all political careers end up in failure. And in many ways, that's what I, that's how I interpreted what emerged there. David McKinley, when you think of Margaret Thatcher uh, and her arrival in Downing Street as Prime Minister, what comes to, what comes to mind uh, in those years? I think, first of all, so many people thought she wouldn't last. Uh, back then, the Labour Party had become almost the, the party the natural party of government certainly lasted a long time. And then this woman appeared who was um, not, not flaky at the start, but very, very uncertain. She was uncertain because of her own style. She didn't have her own voice. She hadn't got her, her own clothes right just then. The, the image wasn't right. But she had a bag. She had a bag, though. She always had a bag, it appears to be. She always had a bag. I went to London for the Irish Times in the early 80s, and she wasn't the Iron Lady now. Uh, she, you know, this is in the days before the miners' strike, before the Falklands, and before the hunger strike. 
So this was not a woman who had uh, proved herself on the front line of politics. She also had a majority, I think, of her cabinet who were, who were wets, people like Jim Pryor and so on, who really didn't like the look of this kind of politics at all. They were more uh, in the politics of consensus, as, as Edward Heath had been. And this turned it, first, first of all, there was an internal power struggle for, for some years, really, going on in there. And then eventually it turned into something else, which was, well, she won. She prevailed over that. But it was, it was a fight for her all along. Given uh, the phalanx of males within that Conservative Party and Tory party, and given that she was a grocer's daughter, how did she ever break through? I think it was sheer personality. Now, I mean, David Brown, in one sense, when Thatcher became leader, it was unexpected. I mean, I, I think she became leader because she challenged at a time when nobody was willing to plunge the knife into Heath, and he was left. I mean, people like Whitelaw and all didn't didn't get get involved in the first one. She went for it because her simple logic was: if someone doesn't go for it, he will remain simply because he won't be challenged. And I think that that's a sign of leadership. But when she won, you know, the leadership and then won the election in '79, she didn't win the election in '79 because of the brilliance of the Conservative Party or even because of the fact she, she was a woman. She won because people were sick, sore and tired of Labour not governing, the, the winter of discontent. That helped her. But when she won, it was a 44 majority. She didn't have control. And as David said earlier, she was surrounded by what she termed the wets who were clearly in a majority of the old guard. She had to fight them first. And when she won the internal battle, and then the Falklands came on, that's when she suddenly became a national leader. Because up until that middle point of that first career, it looked like she wasn't even going to win a second term. David, um, in the movie... Uh, when somebody said, how do you feel, Mrs. Thatcher? She said, I'm not interested in feelings. I'm interested in ideas, getting things done. Was she an ideas person? Was she a lady for getting things done? Or did circumstances dictate? For example, she at one stage she protests to Dennis, it's a duty to your country, she says. And he says, duty my eye, it's ambition to hell with me and the children. Was she that type of politician? She certainly had ideas. She didn't have very many ideas, but she had very strong ideas. And the one that didn't evolve because she had it right from the start was uh, the idea that she wasn't interested in the middle way. She wasn't inter interested in the consensus politics that we'd seen with Jim Callaghan, Harold Wilson, Edward Heath, and so on. She thought of uh, politics more as a battleground. And uh, which it turned out to be that way, certainly in the Falklands, certainly in the minor strike, certainly in the hunger strike. So she was somebody who defined politics as not somewhere where you go and find uh, uh, the middle ground, where you find the compromise. She was interested in victory, and th that's what she followed in those early days. Uh, Alex, from a unionist perspective, was she always a heroine for unionism? Uh, or was she a heroine up to the point where she shafted uh, Jim Molyneux, who actually said, Margaret will not do the deal, the Anglo-Irish agreement, she will not do this deal. She told me in the lift the other day at Westminster. I think, oddly enough, when you, when you look at Thatcher's record, you know, in Northern Ireland, it, it, it's surprising that at any stage, you know, she was popular with unionism, because don't forget, when, when she became Prime Minister on the back of the, that 79 manifesto, it was for an integrationist solution. You know, Jim Mullen would come forward with the idea of basically Stormont as a, a glorified county council. He didn't want more devolution. No high-wire acts no, no high was his favourite expression. But he believed when, when, I think it was a year later, when Sir Humphrey Atkins announced that we were going to be inter-party talks and devolution, 
people forget the Ulster Unionist Party boycotted those talks because Jim Molyneux believed he'd been shafted. They also believed they'd been shafted when she went into the, the talks with Charles Hockey in 1981. And you're right, all the way through that period, from 81 to 85, even when people were... I was sitting at meetings where people were saying to Jim Molyneux across the table... Jim, there is something going on between the British and Irish government. They're doing something. You don't just talk for the fun of it. Uh, all he would ever say was, no, no, I have reassurances from the highest sources in the Conservative Party, and that's the Prime Minister, that nothing will be done. She, he was shafted. She shafted them all the way through. Correct. Uh, David, would, would you share that view? Um, I think that she I think that she wasn't that interested. She had a couple of big instincts about Northern Ireland. One was the security problem. Yes. And the second Draw a straight line along the border. Yeah. Steal it. Exactly. And the second one was that she was instinctively a unionist. But she didn't spend a lot of time on it. She only, she, it was of course forced on her when the, the IRA tried to assassinate her. They did kill Ian Guy. The, the Republicans also killed Erin Yee, very close associates of her. And of course she, at that stage she had to pay attention. But in the absence of things like that, uh, she, she moved, she went from uh, integration, as Alex said. She went into Humphrey Atkins and a devolution conference. Uh, even after the, um, uh, the with the Anglo-Irish agreement, she went from uh, regarding that as primarily a, a security apparatus. She still regarded it as that, but it moved into something else. So what happened was that she had, I think she was over-influenced by her aides and the people around her. For example, you know, with, with, when the RUC said to her, we need more money and we need more men, she said, yes. Whenever the civil servants who put together the Anglo-Irish Agreement said to her, we need a political deal here, she resisted and resisted, and she put forward something that could be presented as a security deal. But eventually she gave in to them, and it turned into a, a political initiative. Yeah, just step back a bit, though. We recall the famous meeting at Dublin Castle, where she and Peter Carrington, Lord Carrington, stayed in the castle on the back of the threat from the IRA because of what happened to your bigs having been bombed, etc., etc. And, and there was the whole thing of the totality of relationships which emerged, which was an anathema, which was foreign to her at one stage, but eventually she shifted on that. And it, it appears, despite this lady who wouldn't turn, in terms of history uh, and, and her tenure, she did uh, per se, portray a very tough, austere, austere or outer uh, 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 demeanour, but internally there was more flexibility there. Would history show that, do you think, Alex? I think well, that actually goes back to something that David was saying earlier. I mean, that there are two distinct sides to, to Thatcher. There's the leadership side which I think was in some senses unique in British politics. She brought a style of leadership which certainly hadn't been seen in the previous 50 years in terms not only of her management of the, the Conservative Party, but of her management of Parliament, of her management of the media. But there was the other side, the philosophical side. Now, oddly enough, I always had the impression that she never really thought it through. I mean, she had instincts, that's true, but in politics you need more than instinct. It's fine to say, get rid of that. But you must always have the replacement. And my fear with philosophy, or my, my fear with Thatcher, is that while she understood some of the philosophical changes that were required, she didn't. Once she decided 
She didn't think it was necessary to talk to anyone else or put anything else in place. Uh, David, if we could just go back there again, uh, the totality of relationships, then we had the situation, the sinking of the Belgrano, with Noel Daw, the United Nations representative of the Irish government uh, at the time, the ambassador there, and the awful, awful row that ensued between Mrs Thatcher and uh, Charles J. Hoy. I think it was in Maastricht at the treaty, isn't that where it was? Derek Nally sp uh, speaks uh, quite liberally about this. Uh, they literally tore strips of each other apart. She was so furious, allegedly, because of the Irish government's attitude over the sinking of the Belgrano and the, and the Falklands War battle. Yeah, so what she didn't have was a consistent deep belief to go with these instincts. You know, she reacted to events. She reacted like the, uh, acts of violence and terrorism. She reacted to her civil servants saying, look, um, you said out, out, out here, and the place is in a mess, and there's terrible alienation. You really have to do something about it. But she didn't. She didn't instigate policies of her own. She didn't say, "This is what we need to do." She was easily blown off course, and she moved from security to politics. I think Enoch Powell had an influence on her in some ways, although he fought with her a lot too. But he he had this deep pessimism, which I think she got too, in the sense that I think she caught on with the idea that. Um, there's not a lot can be done here. There isn't a solution to this problem, uh, apart from a security solution. So let's go for the security initiative. You know where you are, it ties in with your instincts. Of course, it was a, that, I think, the troubles have shown, really, is that that was never going to solve the problem. That was never going to put the troubles right. It was always going to be something like the immensely complex and difficult uh, settlement which we put together now. But you can't imagine Margaret Thatcher having the, the determination, and you can't imagine her having the breadth of vision to even think in those terms. Yeah, Alex, you know, again, you've got to look at uh, the relationship with Guy Fitzgerald and Margaret Thatcher. If you remember that famous statement, were you in London at that time, David, when, when uh, she declared out, out, out to the three yep. recommendations, findings of the New Ireland Forum? Could yep. you just talk, us, talk to us a little bit about that, uh, Alex? Well, I wasn't surprised because, again, as David said, and you said yourself, she was an instinctive unionist. And she had this, this no deep philosophical baggage. She was a person who reacted to events. I think she saw this document, this New Ireland Forum, which was setting out three things, which to her immediately seemed unacceptable. So she didn't discuss it with anyone. She didn't say, let's put this for a couple of weeks while we discuss it. It was just automatic, out, out, out. She did much the same thing, you know, when she was confronted with European Union problems. It was no, 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 and yet a matter of months later she would change. But touching on, you know, on, on that whole, forget the, the, the relationship with the Irish government, the important thing with the Irish government and the SDLP, they were talking to her, they were briefing her. The interesting thing, if you look back in that period with unionism, both in the DUP and the UUP, there was nobody briefing her. There was nobody going with alternatives. There was nobody saying, Prime Minister, look, we know you're talking to the Irish. We know that there's going to be a deal that's going to involve power sharing, it's going to involve you know, the, the, an Irish dimension. We accept that. From the unionist point of view, this is what we would like you to take on board. And because they weren't briefing her, well, she would admit that, yes, they, for her, the Angers Agreement, it, its priority, I think, was a security thing. She also admitted later 
she didn't know what else because she found herself on one occasion, as she said, being the representative of unionism. And it seemed to be an applied criticism that there was no one else. And when Molyneux and Paisley say they were, they were shafted and so on, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, I wrote at the time, they had no one else but themselves to blame because they refused to believe that a Prime Minister who was dealing with foreign government, the United States, the European Union, would even consider doing something. But a Prime Minister will always put the United Kingdom first and foremost. And their refusal to accept that she would do that, their refusal to actually give her alternatives, and also their, their, their failure to accept that just because she had a good relationship with Enoch Powell and a good relationship with Molyneux meant absolutely nothing in the Not two balls of smoke. Of course, um, David, uh, you know, uh, we recall that famous outburst and the absolute humiliation of Guy Fitzgerald at the press conference in the Irish Embassy in London. You had Mrs Thatcher giving a press conference uh, in her headquarters and Garrett uh, turning up on the, on the podium to give a press conference and the news coming through that she had literally shot him down in flames with the declaration out, out, out to all the recommendations. How did Garrett and his officials uh, and uh, the officials in Downing Street, how do you think did the third did the turn Mrs. Thatcher? Did the do a get her right back to the point where the Anglo Irish Agreement emerged? They were initially clearly absolutely affronted, <clears throat> and the nation, the Irish nation, the Irish nationalist nation in Dublin, as opposed to Belfast, were just devastated by this. Uh, but then, you know, the, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Tissue's office and Gareth Fitzgerald himself. Very bright guys, among the very brightest guys you know, we, we've come across in our lives. And they said, well, we either declare war on Mrs. Thatcher and say we're all Argentinians now and we're, 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 we're dead against this and there's no point in continuing it, or we use this. And they, they used it, and they did actually instill in her, she never said sorry, but they did instill in her a sense of guilt and a sense of, oh dear, I've gone too far. And they did instill a sense in her of saying, well, You've created enemies here. You already had the IRA as an enemy, but you've made Gareth Fitzgerald and John Hume your enemies as well. That can't continue, and you're going to have to do something about it. And that, that view prevailed. She did something about it. Uh, uh, Alice, you will recall too, you know, at one stage she referred to Northern Ireland as being as, as British as Finchley. Um, of course, she left uh, a legacy of bitterness in the 80s. Uh, in the Catholic Nationalist community over the hunger strike. And then she repeated that uh, in terms of the Anglo-Irish agreement and how she uh, prompted and motivated uh, Ian Paisley to rampage across the country, etc. So is there ever any point where there's going to be a confluence of opinion uh, or a meeting of the waters within the peoples of this island, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, uh, where she was a force for some good? Oh, that's an extraordinarily difficult question for all sorts of reasons, because, <laughs> again, it's what, it, what David touched upon earlier. It's this fact that I don't actually believe that Thatcher had a set vision for Northern Ireland. You know, it didn't, in many senses, it wasn't top of her, even close to the top of her, Priorities for for the United Kingdom. And going back to the point about you know the out 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 for the Garrett Fitzgerald. I mean she herself I think came up with the the, the thing about Tina. There is no alternative. And after she'd done all of that, David's right. The, the the DFA people went to her and some of her own foreign office people had gone and said, okay, Prime Minister, out out out. Where is the alternative? 
Of course, she realised there wasn't. That's why she started backtracking. And it's the same with, with 81, the hunger strike. We know that there were, for all the tough talk and for all that she was, or putting words in unionist ears about how tough she was going to be, it was clear that we were already talking to the IRA about possible deals. And the same with the anglo irish agreement. She was saying, she, she apparently told Peter Robinson at one stage that, you know, it always put in his ear that there was nothing too much to worry about and so on. And again, it's because I think there wasn't, well, there was some sort of philosophical overview she didn't do the nitty-gritty. She didn't do the real, you know, hammer the nail down sort of detail. And I think that's why, no matter what the issue is, I mean, you look what she did with the unions, you look what she did with the miners, you look what she did with the health state. She didn't roll back the frontiers of the state at all. In, in, in reality, you know, the, 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 it was almost a bigger state in terms of government control when she departed in 1990 than it was when she came in in 1979. You asked a very difficult question there, Eamon, as Alex said. Characteristically different, difficult and there's another difficult one that occurs to me, is that what would Mrs. Thatcher have thought of our settlement now? Uh, I think if you give it a couple of hours to think about this, you would probably wind up saying she would agree with it and she would support it. Maybe not wholeheartedly. That is so counter-instinctive to say. And yet there's nobody, uh, there's, there's none of the major British politicians or Irish politicians or even American politicians, there's none of them who say this settlement is no use. We should sweep this away and do something else. So you wind up with, with saying, um, and I hope I'm right to saying it, that she would have probably have said, well, this is hateful in very, very many ways. I would never have done it myself, but here it is, and it seems to be working. And but you see, I don't believe that. I don't believe that she wouldn't have done it. You see, I had a conversation with David Gilliland, he was the director of communications during the hunger strike period. He was sitting at the table where the hunger strike committee sat at Parliament buildings. And in the course of my research, he told me that Mrs. Thatcher felt so pressurised through her embassies around the world during the hunger strike that she wanted to do a deal with the IRA. She just so detested the international criticism coming at her that she would have done that deal. Gilliland claimed that the committee at Parliament Buildings, or Stormont, told their counterparts in Downing Street there would be mass resignation if they give way to the IRA in terms of the prisoners' demands. Now, that seems extraordinary, but the recent publication, the recent 30 years papers, Alex, would tend to substantiate that position, that she was more flexible. There are, are even claims that she opened a line of communication to the IRA during that period. Well, I, I think the channels for the IRA had been open right from the beginning. We go back to Cheney Place in 1972. They were open, they were always open, they're always back channels in, in, in these cases. But I mean, the, when, when David said, you know, he wondered if Thatcher would accept this, my view is that she would have accepted it, and partly because. A, she didn't have, a, as I said before, an overriding vision. And I don't think any Prime Minister has ever had an overriding vision. I think all they ever wanted was some sort of deal. And the, I, I'm sure they weren't entirely sure how it would manifest itself, but just some sort of deal to which all parties could sign up and they could walk away. Both the British and Irish governments could underwrite it and walk away. And that's what we've ended up with. It's a massively flawed 
uh, deal. It, it, it's a very strange form of government. I'm not sure that Northern Ireland is any less polarised than it was 30 or 40 years ago. But from the British and Irish government's point of view, from the Unionists, from the Nationalists, from the Republic, whatever, they can all take something from it and say, this is a deal. If this had been possible 10, 15 years, I think they would have done it 10, 15 years. It just got to the point when all the people, all the main players got together at one moment and said, oh, well, God, just get on with it. David? I suppose on mature reflection, I would say, I think that um, Mrs Thatcher would, would, would accept the deal today, but she wouldn't have done it. The idea of Mrs Thatcher shaking hands with Jerry Adams, with Martin McGuinness, uh, of appearing in the same room and so on, I think she actually, the, you know, the IRA with their violence did actually inflict um, damage on her personally uh, in, in her, in her, as a woman. Uh, and in, in in killing her associates, you know, so I can't imagine she would have done it. I can imagine her saying to her, uh, to in her her successors, or giving the the nod quietly, saying, "Yes, I suppose this this has to be done." This is the woman, though, who who wanted the Irish government to engage in hot pursuit, uh, Alex. It, she wanted a situation where the police and army, both sides of the border, could go straight across, in, out, in, out, and hunt these people down, just like, just like, like rats. Now, isn't it remarkable, then, that she should be talking or opening lines of communication or approving lines of communication to be open to the IRA, uh, not just for the back channel, but uh, during the hunger strike? Aren't there so many contradictions in this woman? In, in one sense, yes, and maybe I've been in the game too long, but I mean, none of this surprises me. You know, people say, well, we'll never do this American government. Is don't. this perfidious Albion at no, work? No, I think it's perfidious politics, no matter where you put it, that's what happens. And, and David's right in the sense, you know, Thatcher, I think, instinctively wouldn't have done it. There would have been an, an out, out, out moment as well. But he's right, people would have come and said to her, look, Margaret, what is the alternative? And juxtapose her position, had, had she been in that position, with Peter Robinson and Ian Paisley. They wouldn't have done the Good Friday deal, but nor did they do anything to stop the Good Friday deal, because it's quite clear that if the DUP, along with um, Bob McCarthy and a few other elements, had chosen to actually bring down the Assembly in its early days, they could have brought it down. They knew, however, as soon as the executive was set up in December 1999, and they decided, having said they would never be in government at any stage, it wouldn't matter how long the quarantine period was going to be, they would never be in government. They had the, let's call it the Thatcher moment, the realisation that no matter how much their basic guttural instincts were telling them, this is immoral, this is wrong, and so on, in the absence of that viable and available alternative, politicians and governments go for the next best option. And whatever you call the Belfast Agreement, whatever you call talking to the IRA, whatever you call the back channels, in most cases, they are the next best option. David, are they just liars or pragmatists? I think they're pragmatists. I think, and this applies to just about every British government, every administration we've seen here, they take four separate approaches. One is that they maintain security against terrorism. The second is that they maintain the economy uh, so that it doesn't go under altogether. The third is that they keep talking to the, the centre parties, the moderate parties, to see if they can get a, a centre-based uh, deal going. And the fourth thing is that they keep their lines open to uh, the extremists, um, the loyalists, but more particularly the IRA. So now you can call that hypocrisy because some of those things cut across each other. You know, they might be talking to the IRA when they're, when they're blowing up buildings somewhere. But as they were, as they were, as we now know they were. Certainly. But they, uh, what you have is this, um, uh, this four, 
these four fingers, these four policies, and they all go on. They all go on all the time. You could say it's hypocrisy, but the other way of putting it is it's to say whatever works, whatever uh, improves things, whatever gets the settlement here. So they try all those four, often simultaneously, and see what works. Just something occurred to me, because I want to make something of a confession here. Uh, but I want to hear from you firstly, Alex. When the Brighton bomb went off and news of that reached your ears, what was your immediate response? Well, I suppose it, it was instinctive anger. Um, but it's not simply my unionist background. It, but, I mean, it was an attack on the government of the United Kingdom. It wasn't just about Northern Ireland anymore. This was a message to the government, to the Prime Minister, and to the wider world. But oddly enough, I remember writing about it about a week later and thinking, whatever the outcome of this is, the government will now have to do something. There are only two responses to this. Either you bring the full power of the UK state down upon the head of the IRA and you make it clear wherever you are, forget this, this cross-border deal, so wherever you are in the United Kingdom, we will find you, we will get you. Or you have to make a big decision about how do you stop this? Do you stop this by this, the power of the state or do you stop it by the power of politics? And I think at that moment, for all of what Thatcher said and for all of what some of the right wing of the Conservative Party, I think at that moment there was a sudden, very subtle changing of, of government policy, which is we really, really, because whoever with the IRA line, we only have to get lucky once. I think they realised that is true. David, what was your um, visceral response? <clears throat> Well, I had been in the, the hotel in Brighton earlier that night, sort of about 10 or 11 o'clock before the bomb went off. So, first of all, there was a kind of a shock, and there was a, a bit, you know, how, how close myself and other people had come to death. There was a, there was then those terrible pictures of Mormon Tebbit being carried out, and there were all those people injured, all those people killed. And there was, in the initial thing, which we get here after the big bombs. I don't know if you get this too, but you get the sense that this, this is the end of the road for, for the moment, this is the end of the road. And you had this was the Molyneux argument there of saying, look, there's, there's no point in doing this. All you can do is a security response. But then I suppose the, the um, you have to give some credit to Dublin at this point, because Dublin, again, as as after the out, 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 was saying, we're, you're in a jam, London is in a jam, but we too in Dublin, we are in a, in a jam as well because this is our island, this is our country, and this thing is destabilising both um, uh, both Britain. And of course, Gareth Fitzgerald feared, uh, in fact, he feared that the Irish government could be destabilised. And the key argument that worked from Gareth was he said, we need each other. This is not just, you, you, Britain needs as many friends as it can get. The big friend that you have on your doorstep is Dublin. Let's do this this together, and that's what happened. Isn't it interesting, you know, what, what falls out, we forget. You were in that hotel, within hours, literally, of that. But when you were there, that bomb was just ticking. Isn't it extraordinary when you think of that? Yeah, and it had been there, wasn't it, for weeks, maybe months? Yeah. It had been there. Isn't it remarkable? Months. Now, let me just tell you, my reaction, I was still in bed when I heard uh, what had happened. And two things occurred to me. One, uh, shock. Secondly, I said a prayer of thanksgiving that Margaret Thatcher wasn't killed. A prayer of thanksgiving, I suppose, because she survived, because it hit violence. And secondly, 
when I thought of the potential consequences of the killing of the Prime Minister, possibly in our midst, right on our own streets, maybe within doors of where we all live, I was so grateful because who who could have worked out, who could have uh, guessed what might have happened here had Margaret Thatcher been killed? And yet, it was odd. I was particularly worried about the Protestant loyalist community, how they would react. And we had a lady working for us at the time who came from Kilburn Street. And she was a wonderful lady and she, she gave me a very good sense of the Protestant working class areas. And I remember asking her the following day what the reaction was down in her area. Do you know what she said? She heard many of them saying, it's a pity they didn't get her. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? I certainly hadn't mm. got that sentiment, you know. But she had obviously offended some working class Protestants, probably because of her social policies, etc. in Britain. Well, oddly enough, you know, you say that. I, I'm not as surprised by that as you are, because I, I certainly heard some middle class um, say it's a pity they haven't got her. But oddly enough, they said it because they, they believed that these would have been the people who took the view that, you know, why can't the IRA be, be destroyed? They took the view that had the Prime Minister been killed, that would have been the one thing, someone else, someone as popular as Thatcher, that would have been the one thing that would have made the gloves come off. Now, I, I never believed that would have happened. But, I mean, this, this notion that everyone you know, was going, oh dear, well, a lucky escape, there, there was an element, and there always will be, when, when you have um, backgrounds like Northern Ireland, there always will be an element, both in the working class and from the more so-called soi-disant you know, intellectuals of the middle class, that, you know, well, maybe sometimes if the nuclear button had been pushed then we could have been saved the Anglo-Irish agreement, we could have been saved having to do this deal with Sinn Féin. Uh, David, um, I think, did John Hume say that she was the greatest nationalist, uh, British nationalist, in terms of Ireland? Because she stood by the Anglo-Irish agreement. You remember the signing of the Anglo-Irish agreement uh, at Hillsborough Castle. You remember the, that day very, very well, where, where the signing was taking place. The speeches were being made. We were cross-examining herself and Garfus Child, and outside there was this cacophony of noise, well, a raucousness of Ian Paisley and, and his protesters, etc. Isn't it a fact that she stuck it to them? She stuck it to loyalism and unionism at that time. I don't think that she meant to. I think she did, but I don't think that she meant to. I think she was getting primarily into a security agreement. And if you remember, there were parts of security in it. There were new watchtowers. Lookout towers on the border, which Alan Jukes opposed. She wanted a sort of a a Vietnam syndrome. It's not what she wanted, to lookout towers like the the Americans had in Vietnam. Yeah. And there were more, I think there were more troops brought in. And uh, she was, I, 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 I think she was actually upset by the agreement, by the reaction to the agreement. Um, I think she was a bit surprised, you know, by uh, just how much reaction there was. She had thought, and just looking back at some notes there, you know, she was, you see her saying to her aides, but why are the unionists so, um, uh, why are they so upset? Don't they know that they can trust me? Don't don't they realise that I'm the person that they can trust? That unionists didn't trust her, but she thought that she had built up enough capital that she could do something as as wide as far-reaching as the agreement. Alex, if I remember, and if I'm uh, recalling what Gareth Fitzgerald wrote in his autobiography, uh, when the deal was done, when the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed and sealed in Hillsborough Castle, Gareth, if I could, if I remember correctly, raised the question of the international fund for Ireland or something extra money coming here, and didn't she say, 
more money for these people? Have you seen their roads? Have you seen their schools? Like, isn't that extraordinary that, that this woman should react? Gareth, Gareth seemed appalled, and yet she seemed to think, are you mad in the head to give them more? Look what the standards they have. Well, I wasn't aware of that, of that quote. Although I, I was aware later, a few months later, that the, the Irish government were genuinely surprised at how much out of the loop um, both the DUP and GUP were. Because um, I, know, I know they thought you know, that the, the, the UP and GUP hadn't really been making much of a contribution either together or separately. But I think they were of the opinion that somewhere along the lines of a back channels to both parties saying this is going to happen. But in, in terms of, of what John Hume said about you know, what, what Thatcher done and standing by this, I think David's right about that as well. I think it wasn't that she, this was a conviction moment. I think she had not, no choice. But to stand by. But I also think she thought, uh, in the sense that the, there was an assembly in Northern Ireland at that time which she thought could be built upon. The constitutional guarantee remained in place. The, the, this agreement was being underwritten by the, the Irish government. There wasn't going to be joint sovereignty. This was a new breakthrough for the relations between both government. The IRA would be put under pressure. I think she, she couldn't understand what there was in this that, that, that would offend them in any sense. And in, in one sense, it's not a huge difference between that moment and what you got in on Good Friday 1998. The only difference being that the unionists were involved. And I, I just think it, it, it's one of those, when we look back at that moment of what the unionists were trying to destroy then, that 14 years later, they were, I wouldn't say ecstatic to, to give some sort of um, solidity to, but it's the same path they stayed on. So she was getting her unionist feedback from... You know, Powell and from Jim Molyneux, uh, and she was getting it from, uh, I suppose, whoever the Lord Lieutenant of County Down was uh, back then, and she was getting it from uh, the high Tories like Ian Guy. Um, you could see from that that this wasn't a correct uh, position, because the one thing that Molyneux and Powell had was this negativity that I mentioned before, of saying this is about as good as it's going to get. Which didn't, which didn't reflect the general unionist and Protestant position of saying, we need to do something about this, we need to fix this. If nothing else, we need a stronger security response that you, Alex, mentioned earlier on. So she, her political intelligence was really very bad. It was bad. Well, it, a huge problem with that, but one of the, one of the key influences on Molyneux at that period was Enoch Powell. And I, I'd worked for Enoch for, you know, for a couple of years, 79 to 81. Enoch's understanding of unionism and what mattered to not just the unionists in general it was completely at odds with the reality on the ground. They did want devolution, they did want control in their own hands for all the, the, the relationship that had with the, the Conservative over the years and reasonably good relationships at times with the Labour Party. They didn't trust their instinct for always to trust themselves ourselves alone quite literally for unionism. But Powell was going on to Molyneux about integration about you know the, the bigger UK, bigger this and this was at a time of course when, when nationalism was getting you know, fairly aggressive in Scotland and Wales as well and in part of England with the growth of English nationalism. Powell was giving there a message, I think, which didn't bear any relation to what unionists were thinking. And Molyneux, I, I, I never to this day quite worked out 
you know, because it certainly wasn't Mrs. Thatcher saying to Jim, don't worry, there's no Anglo-Irish deal, there's nothing to worry about. But there must have been somebody somewhere, because I sat in enough meetings with Jim Molyneux telling Ulster Unionist Executive, oh, you don't need to worry about it, this is all fine, I don't know why you're getting yourself worked up. And I've written a piece for the newsletter since something is happening. This was the about November, December 1984. Something's happening, we need to be looking at options. And be like, okay, young man like you shouldn't be trying to scare people. Hold on, that's hold on. I was at the press conference. We had a, a weekly press conference with Jim Molyneux when Martin Smith was deciding the economic policy of the Chancellor at Westminster. Can you imagine? Imagine Now, Jim Molyneux very specifically said that Thatcher told him in the lift there would be no signing of any Anglo-Irish agreement. He was totally and absolutely deluded. Now, he says she told him that. So what was going on? Maybe he was deluded. I cannot believe that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, knowing what was happening at that moment, knowing the back channels that were going on with the IRA and other issues, knowing what was going on with the Dublin government, knowing what was going on with the SDLP and you know elements of the American government, would meet Jim Mullen on the left and say, Jim, ignore everything you read in the papers, ignore every political commentator, yeah. ignore every other political party, it's all a lie, it's a big cunning ruse, it's just a baldric strategy I have to catch everybody off foot and you will have your integrated Northern Ireland, will there be no feelings about the place at all, and unionism will be happy and Enoch will be leader of this other, I just don't see that happening. Why did he see it there? Because I think the one thing about Jim, he had the, I can't remember the American president who said, you know, ex- express your express your hope and keep your fears to yourself. I think sometimes Jim had that view that you shouldn't worry people, you shouldn't frighten people. Because the one thing about Mullen, and I talked to him years later, um, back in maybe 2006, 2007, and he said his greatest achievement was that the Ulster Unionist Party never divided when he was, was leader of it. And I remember sort of joking and saying, that's because it never made any decisions at all. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. There was nothing to divide on, Jim. And yes, you you mean, you talk about what Trimble did. But Trimble... They had to take decisions. Yes. It wouldn't matter who took, whether it had been Martin Smith, yeah. Willie yeah. Ross, Ken McGuinness, they were going to have to take decisions. And simply leading the party by managing it, by making every... I mean, I remember him also telling me years ago as well, that, and this was when I, you know, this would have been before the anger Agreement, he always said, you know, Alex, the secret is... Because the ginger group, the charter group, which was yeah. pro-devolution, the UK group was integration, you had some of the groups been led by um, Fred Cobain and people like that. I remember saying to Jim once over a cup of coffee, you know, um, how do you stop them all falling apart? Said, the secret is, Alex, when they leave the room, they have to believe that you are 100% behind them. And that's how, he, that's how he led the party. So he would never actually say at an executive meeting, by the way, guys, maybe we should have an option, just in case, just in case Margaret, as, as she has on so many other occasions, gets you know, waylaid by the, the, the Foreign Office or by the Dublin government or by the American. There was never an alternative. And that's, that was the great tragedy for unionism. There was no alternative on, on that day. And it was, it was himself, it was one of himself, who got himself into the pickle there because... When he left the room for, after speaking to Thatcher, he thought uh, he thought that she agreed with him 100%. <laughs> I don't think it was anything she said, but what she didn't say. I think Jim was into this business of nods and winks and right. sonic and, you know, uh, sideward glances and so on. He was given a parliament by the Foreign Secretary. All is well, Alex. Yeah. Um, David, uh, we have to... Wind this up. We have had a fairly in-depth discussion, very, very good discussion, very enjoyable, I have to say. Um, 
Will the Anglo-Irish Agreement be uh, her contribution then uh, in the eyes of nationalism and her poison chalice to unionism, Alex, I'll ask you afterwards, uh, in terms of uh, what she delivered for unionism at that time? I suppose you have to say what would she think was her, um, was, was her achievement. And I think, I think she'd do anything rather than claim the Anglo-Irish Agreement as, a, as, a, as, a, as an achievement. Uh, but she did it. It looks, it looks, and at the time, you know, you had the unionist protest. But now you look back and say, we're actually set the scene for for so much that it follows. And so it's very hard to give her credit because it wasn't the agreement that she sought out to get. She didn't set out to get any particular agreement at all. But she certainly didn't set out to get one, a political one, and she didn't set out whatever. <laughs> We were saying earlier on, she didn't set out to bring the provos into politics. She just didn't. Um, but wasn't she wrong, David? If she thought it was going to stop the IRA violence and save the SDLP, ultimately, she didn't stop the IRA violence for a long time. Uh, the Exxon and all started coming in in the aftermath of that, and uh, she didn't save the SDLP ultimately. So from that perspective, it wasn't a great deal, was it? Uh, no, and I, in a way, I mean, I don't think it was one of her primary aims was to save the SDLP. Um, it was Garrett's aim, though. Uh, totally Garrett's aim, yes, and John Hume's aim, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't hers. And really, I think she just came into the the, the Irish question um, without having done a great deal of research in it. She went through it without developing her own theory of what should be done, her own aims and her own aspirations. And she left it unresolved. So in a way, there's not. You can look at it and say, well, one achievement was that she um, um, she stood up to the IRA. She uh, she said, we're not giving in to you. And I suppose uh, probably her, if she had, if she was compassmentous enough to say, she would probably say, I didn't give in to the IRA at any stage. I might have spoken to them through aids and through intelligence people but I didn't give in and I didn't uh, give up democracy. That's probably what she would claim as her epitaph. Alex, did she deliver a poison chalice for unionism with the Anglo-Irish Agreement? Did she land unionism where it is today? Was that a good thing? Uh, well, she did land unionism where it is today, but I think the, a byproduct of the, of the Anglo-Irish Agreement, um, uh, um, from her point of view, an unintended one, was that for the first time in maybe a generation, she forced unionism to start thinking because it was it was as a consequence of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. You got the campaign for equal citizenship. You got this whole growth of the Ulster Scots industry in Northern Ireland. You got the Cadogan Group. You got Bob McCartney and people like that. Emerging. Footnotes in history. Footnotes yeah, yeah, in no, history. But, not, but it caused but those people. I'm surprised no, you're no, even no, drawing attention no, no, to no, these people. No, no. The very fact that that was happening, actually, oddly enough. However, you'd want to cut this particular cookie. The Cadogan no, Group? No, no, Are you serious? No, no, it paved the way for people like like David Trimble because there was a, a type of thinking he was doing in devolutionary terms, which wasn't been done in, publicly in any part of unionism. And Trimble, there were, without the Anglo Irish Agreement, there would have been no David Trimble. And without David Trimble, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement. So, yes, I'm not saying that, you know, you may talk about footnotes and may say they're irrelevant, but history is often made of, like Sherlock Holmes always say, you know, it's the observation of trifles, and sometimes it's the observation of the political irrelevancies, which, which pave the way to something Hold on not there. necessarily better. Without Lee Reynolds, there will be no David Trimble. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, no, actually, no. Um, 
Without the um, without Bob McCartney winning the seat in uh, the by election in 1995, because Lee Reynolds may have uh, discomforted um, Jim Molyneux and the leadership of the Old Students Party, it wasn't enough to topple them. What toppled them was that when James Molyneux and Ken McGuinness put their very public, very heavy support and that against or against uh, Bob McCartney, and, like, and he still went on to win. I remember getting a call two hours after that result came in, and somebody just said to me, "It's Des Alex. He is Des now." Lee Reynolds thing that they it was it was interesting. But he was talking horse. He was a stalking horse. And, but the interesting about that is it it, it, it showed a problem with the Ulsterunist Party which still continues. That there's very little courage. And it, go back to where we started this interview. Thatcher became leader because she had the courage to take on the existing leader. No stalking horses. She just did it herself. In a sentence, then, David, how will Thatcher be remembered on this island? I suppose having listened to. Having listened to the three of us <laughs> talking here, um, talking to ourselves, <laughs> talking to ourselves it's, it's not. She won't be. A, a, it doesn't look as though she's going to be uh, remembered with affection. Uh, it doesn't do, look as though she's going to be remembered for her achievements. Uh, the a lot of the anger and the the, the, the IRA violence hatred of her may, as I suggest, may have cooled as the years go by. Uh, but she's not somebody who really left um, a, a big footprint in the sands of Northern Ireland. Um, I think in many ways it defeated her, it has defeated a lot of other people, and it was left to those who came after her to start to put things right. Is that a harsh critique of Margaret Thatcher and Ireland, Alex? No, I don't think so. I think it was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte who said the greatest gift from history is to be remembered. And there are lots of people we talk about now on a regular basis who will be forgotten in 20, 30, 40 years' time. I think as long as people talk about not simply Ireland and Northern Ireland, but about European politics, national politics, they will talk about Thatcher. And to be honest, I think she'd be happy enough with that. Look, she had difficulties, I'm aware of that. But the great thing about Thatcher, and for, for someone who had, we're all in this game of having to write and observe. Yes. The job is made an awful lot easier and an awful lot more exciting when the person you're, you're talking about has got attributes however odd they may be, but they're worth listening to. David? Uh, yes, it's been very interesting talking about her. Uh, she will be remembered in different ways. Um, she won't be remembered in the same way, I think, as people like Hume and Fitzgerald will be remembered, in the sense that those were people with a plan. They were, you know, Hume was a man with a plan, and so was Gareth Fitzgerald. But she didn't have a sense of imposing her will on this very difficult situation. Yeah, I, I, my own recollection of her is, in many ways, courtesy of Derek Henderson, our mutual colleague. Uh, I interviewed her, I did a one-to-one -one interview with her, and uh, Derek always sat in on the, on, the, on the interviews wherever she went when she came here because he was uh, representing the Press Association. And I really rattled her because she had made the statement that the IRA were playing the last card, etc. And then Bobby Sands got elected, and then Owen Karen got elected, and all the councillors got elected, etc. Et and I put it, I said, the last time you were here, you said these people were playing the last card. And now these people are elected. So when I left the room, she was quite angry with me. And when I left the room, she, she, she just settled uh, for 30 seconds. And she said, in the presence of all uh, present, I know him, she said. I must never get angry with him. <laughs> and of course, she was fulminating at this stage, you know. But she was something else now. She and Charles J. Hawley, I would say, were the two rudest public figures 
I have ever, ever interviewed or tried to interview. She didn't hear anything that I put to her. She was in the business, like Harry, of uh, propagandizing, of getting her message across. And Harry was the very same. But by golly, we're talking about her. And I suspect as long as we're alive, we'll be talking about her. For imamali.com, uh, I just want to say it's been a pleasure. This has been the first of our political podcasts on imamali.com. We'll be returning, I'm sure, to Margaret Thatcher sometime in the future. I hope our listeners uh, are going to enjoy the program. And I hope they've learned something from old codgers like us who seem to have been around uh, for as long, if not longer, than Margaret Thatcher. Good evening.